The spirit of performance is what defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. There's no distance too far for the perfect trip. Hi, checking in for... Or the perfect table. Hey, where are you? Coming! And when you get access to Resi Priority Notify with your Amex Platinum card... Hey, this looks amazing! I'm so glad you made it. And travel benefits at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. It's worth the trip. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and a broom. A performance-enhancing broom. My name is John Cullen. I'm a comedian, podcaster, and for 20 years, I was a semi-professional curler. And I want to tell you the story about how a single broom almost imploded the 500-year-old sport of curling. We felt like we were bringing a knife to a gunfight. It's the story of a superstar and his fall from grace. Oh, I was being dragged through the mud. It's the story of two brother entrepreneurs with a dream. Yeah, I said, that's great news. It's a story of intrigue. I still don't understand why we want to keep his name secret. The full story has never been told, so I'm going to tell it. Broomgate. How a broom almost killed curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. To listen to Broomgate, search for Broomgate in your favorite podcast app. That's all one word. Broomgate. The following is a presentation of the Speedsport Podcast Network. Mike Wallace doesn't have all that much driving experience. For the last three or four years, he's put in his views in this business. Mike Wallace comes down to the line. He'll pick up the win. It's fast car to NASCAR with Mike Wallace. The battle's for the lead. Mike Wallace gets by Jason Leffler. Mike Wallace comes off turn number four. A great move in that corner. He comes to the line and will win. From grassroots to the top of the racing world. Hear the stories of NASCAR's biggest names and how they made it all the way. Who was Tony Stewart before he was Tony Stewart? I could barely make enough money to pay attention, let alone to try to survive. From the Speed Sport Podcast Studios, powered by My Race Pass, here are your hosts, Mike Wallace and Jeff Kent. Welcome to Fast Car to NASCAR with Mike Wallace, part of the Speed Sport Podcast Network, powered by My Race Pass. My name is Jeff Kent. Strap yourselves in, pull those belts tight. We'll take you on a journey from short tracks across America to super speedways and everything in between. Today's guest, Mike, longtime crew chief, current racing analyst on Fox Sports. He served as a NASCAR crew chief from 1985 to 2000, amassing 23 cup wins, 21 pulls, 122 top fives, 209 top 10 finishes. In 1991, he became the crew chief for Robert Yates Racing and its fame number 28 with driver Davey Allison. They combined to win 11 races and three poles between 1991 and mid-1993. He established himself as one of the sport's elite crew chiefs. They won the 1992 Daytona 500, swept the NASCAR All-Star Race in 91-92, nearly won the Series Point Championship in 1992, with the title chase going down to the final race. After Allison's untimely death in 1993, success continued with drivers Ernie Urban and Dale Jarrett. And in 1997, he took over as Dale Earnhardt's crew chief and was on the pit box for what was perhaps Earnhardt's biggest win as a driver, the 1998 Daytona 500. He ended his career as a crew chief after the 2000 season and ventured into the Fox Sports booth, broadcast booth with Mike Joy and old DW. He remains a racing analyst and also co-hosts a daily radio program on Sirius XM. Oh, by the way, happy belated birthday. He is America's crew chief, Larry McReynolds. Say hi to Mike Wallace. That was quite the intro. I'm telling you, I need to hire you for, a, for an agent. But, you know, I always like to be honest with fans and with listeners uh, to your point, 23 wins, cup wins, but I start, started 470 races. That means I lost 447, <laughs> so I'm, I'm not sure about those numbers sometimes. That's pretty dang good, though. <laughs> yeah, I, I just – what did you say? How many did you say we won? 20 what? 23, 23, but I lost 447. Larry, let me explain something to you. 209 top 10s, though. Come on. A guy like me has to do this to myself now and then. 23 wins, right? 
That is right. 23 wins than most any other crew chief in the world has. <laughs> okay, okay. I guess when you put it in that perspective. And we, and we got to put it in the perspective of the world. So on any Sunday when you're running a NASCAR race, if you win, you are the best in the world right. because there's the only drivers, one NASCAR one race that weekend. Whatever, yeah. Yeah. In the world. So sometimes, you know, the, the industry's hard on you. They don't want to give you the, the due credit that you deserve, but... <laughs> Hey, man, you won 23 races. That's all I can tell you. <laughs> Good job. Well, I, and, and, you know, and you know this, Mike, I, I remember something about all 23, but then some of those that got away, that's, that's the ones you remember the most distinctly as the one that you came so close and just something happened near the end of the race. And, uh, those are the ones that really stings as you well know. Oh, without a doubt. You know, Larry, part of our show, or always the first part of our show, we kind of jump around. I, I don't have a good uh, path I follow, so bear with me here. But our fans think they know who we're talking to. Everybody knows Larry Mack, right? Or Larry McReynolds, America's crew chief. But most people don't know where Larry came from. They might know Alabama because you like football down there, but how did you ever get involved in motorsports? I, I recognize that you and I are the exact same age. Our birth dates are on the same day, two different two months apart. We started racing in 1975, according to some stuff I've read. But what even got you interested? Did you grow up around the sport? Did somebody take you to a race? I want, I want you to tell the story. How did Larry McReynolds even get involved in motorsports? You know, I know most people that, that gets involved in racing has a very unique story, but probably mine's going to gonna be a little even more so unique. Uh, I did not come from a racing background whatsoever. You know, from Birmingham, Alabama, to your point, was an only child. My mom and dad could care less about racing. But my grandfather, my, my mom's dad, and my mom's sister, my aunt, who was really more like a sister to me, she was the baby of the family. She was only 10 years, or is only 10 years older than I am. The three of us, Every Friday night, uh, BIR, the local racetrack, Birmingham International Raceway, every Friday night, it was about a 15-minute walk from my grandparents' house. We would go down and watch the local races on Friday night. And then my aunt got married. Her husband was a race fan. Every Friday night from mid-April to Labor Day, the four of us would go down and watch the local races. Well, to your point, 1975, I, I was, uh, I think, a sophomore, junior in high school. They started this brand-new division called a street stock hobby division. And, I mean, it was a very stock race car, a one-page one set of rules. You took the windows out. You, you, you put some roll bars in it. You put the fuel tank up in the trunk, beefed up the hubs and engine a little bit, put a number on the side of the car, boom, you got a race car. <laughs> Well, my aunt was a little bit of a hot rodder, and that particular night, she looked at her husband and said, I could do that. I'd like to do that. Well, he was a, he was a mechanic, very mechanically inclined, and uh, he, he kind of looked at her and chuckled and said, well, I'll tell you what, go out and find some sponsors, and we'll build you a race car. Well, I'm sure because of being a female in a man's sport, she went out and rounded more sponsors than we could almost have room on the race car. So my little racing career started in the basement of my aunt and uncle's house, building her street stock hobby car. And Mike, Jeff, I didn't know a three-quarter wrench from a three-quarter boat, but I, I had to learn pretty quickly. Man, that's a nice story. That's I was, cool you know, I, I, I was trying to figure out where the story would go to, and that's just about. Being a race fan somewhere close in the area, and then uh, yeah, but of all people, your aunt, yeah, I can do that, yeah. So, so let's <laughs> yeah, keep yeah. thinking about that, Larry. That's how you guys started. So, how did the aunt do? How did the car? How did the the preparation of that race car turn out? Well, it, you you know, we did the best we could. Even though she had a lot of sponsors, it was still a very small, small, small budget. And I'm not going to say she wasn't talented. But I'm not sure the talent was there to go out there and be super competitive. And as you know, Mike, racing is a disease. It gets in your bloodstream, and there is no getting it out. And 
I started working my junior year in high school in the afternoons. I started working at a junkyard in Birmingham, Charles Finley Auto Parts. And he sponsored a late model car. And it was owned by the man, a man by the name of Bobby Ray Jones, right there outside of Birmingham. And at that point, a guy by the name of Richard Orton was driving it. Well, one Saturday, we were going to close the junkyard up about 12 o'clock. And Charles asked me, said, uh, hey, I'm going to go up to Nashville tonight. About You know, it's about a three-hour drive. I'm going to go up to Nashville tonight and watch Bobby Ray and Richard run tonight. Well, you, you want to ride up there with me? I said, yeah, absolutely. So we hopped in his car. We closed the junkyard. We got up there, and I kind of started weeding my way in, and I'd maybe help do this or help do this. And by the end of the night, I was all over that race car. And when we got loaded up, a couple of the guys looked at me and said, hey, you ever get tired of working on your aunt's car? You come on out there to our shop. You can help us anytime you want. That's all I needed to hear. And I was out there on Monday night chatting with them about about helping them on their car. Well, what a way to get going there. That's I mean, that, cool. did you ever, did you ever feel, did you ever get behind the wheel of a car as a driver, Larry? You do not want to see me behind the wheel <laughs> of a race car. No, I never had the desire to drive a race car. I'm the guy on the interstate all the way in the left lane, probably running five miles per hour slower than what the speed limit is. And more than likely I've got my turn signal on. <laughs> <laughs> we have a we have a word for that, Larry, but we cannot use it, even though this is not a uh, real public. The FCC's not listening. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no kidding. But <laughs> what do you think? Help me understand. Uh, why do you think you never wanted to drive? That that intrigues me. I mean, I've talked to people, but just just never. You were just a didn't like driving on the street. No appeal to it. But man, did you turn into one heck of a crew chief. So that's that's kind of amazing because sometimes you hear the story like every crew chief has sat in a car and wants to right. want to feel like what the driver's talking about or whatever. But uh, any particular reason why you never got in one or just never had the desire? I, you know, I don't know that I have an absolute reason, Mike, but I think I just was so intrigued from the very beginning of, of working on her street stock car in their basement of just working on them mm-hmm. and trying to make them go faster and trying to make them more durable and trying to make them better. Um, it just, it never, I don't know that it ever really even crossed my mind about actually being a race car driver. I got you. So as things were progressing there in, in the Birmingham area where you're racing with your aunt and helping them guys, maybe go to Nashville or whatever, where did it go from that point? How did, uh, how did, when did you quit working for the aunt's car and, and move on? Well, again, left her, you know, I, I guess it would have been, you know, 1977. And again, I was maybe now closing in on becoming a senior in high school and started helping, you know, the local short track. And as we all know, whether it was working for her, excuse me, or working for Bobby Ray Jones, it was volunteer only. You know, you didn't make anything whatsoever. I, I had to work in that junkyard, especially after I graduated. Monday through Friday to make my living and then worked on those race cars about every single night and traveled all over the Southeast on the weekend helping them. But eventually Dave Mater the third started driving that car and we had a lot of success. We won a lot of races. We won the 1978 snowball derby down in Pensacola. Oh, wow. That's, that's impressive. A lot of big races. And then Mike Alexander started driving, but I was, I would, you know, I was, I turned 21 years old and I'd kind of reached that fork in the road that again, I worked at that junkyard and, and, and there's not a hotter place in the summer than a junkyard. And there's not a colder place in the winter than the junkyard. I was working there Monday through Friday. Uh, you, what five, did you do five, at the junkyard, Larry? What was your, what, what, what job did you have? Or did you have any particular job at the junkyard? Well, originally it was pulling parts. And then worked there for a couple of years and eventually worked my way to working behind the counter selling parts. Okay. And, but I'd, I'd leave that junkyard, Mike, 5, 5.30. I'd run through a McDonald's or a Burger King drive-thru, grab me something to eat. I'd go out there and work on that late model many times all night long and quit, quit just in time enough to go home 
catch a shower, and get back to the junkyard. It was a vicious cycle that never ended. I loved it. I was having fun, but I'm thinking, why why can't I make my living working on race cars? And I talked about working on, at the counter. And we had a guy that worked on the yard, and this was in July of 1980. We had a guy that worked on the yard that drove the forklift, and I stayed on him all the time. He would pull that forklift up behind the, the shop, and he'd leave the, the forks about head high. And I said, you got to stop. you got to start lowering those forks down. Well, as fate has it, I got a call on somebody wanting to park, and I ran out that back door to go check it, and I centered one of those forks. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Had a concussion, probably about 15, 20 stitches, and, and I had to lay low for a couple of weeks. And I, I'm, I'm sitting, laying at home, still lived at home with my mom and dad. And I'd read every magazine you could read. I'd watched every soap opera you could watch. <laughs> and there used to be a NASCAR newsletter. Because, again, I was a member of NASCAR because a lot of the races we were running were NASCAR-sanctioned events. So I had a NASCAR license, and I got this NASCAR newsletter every single week, every single month. That was a little black and white fold-out, right? Exactly. Yep, I got and that. always on the back side, there was classifieds. And it may be somebody trying to sell a race car, trying to sell an engine, trying to buy a race car. Well, I'm just glancing through these classifieds, and the last classified on the very bottom said, New Winston Cup Series team starting Greenville, South Carolina. Looking for fabricators and mechanics, call this number. I went, wow. Hmm. So I called the number. What have I got to lose? As Mike Joy always says, if, if you don't ask, the answer will always be no. <laughs> so right. I called and actually ended up talking to a lady. It was the owner's daughter, Dana Williamson. Bob Rogers was the owner. And we talked for about 20, 30 minutes. And she knew who I was because we had raced against them in late model some. Their driver was a local driver by the name of Don Sprouts. So we talked a little bit. She took my information, and I hung up thinking I'm probably about one in a million calls she got. And that was, you know, it was a great conversation, but I'll never hear back from her. Well, about a month later, I'm all healed up from the from the injury. I get home one, one night, and my mom said, Larry, some lady from Greenville, South Carolina called you today. And I went, what? And she <laughs> said, the number is in there by the phone. So I couldn't call that number fast enough. And she said, Larry, we, we've talked about different people. And we're coming to Birmingham to run the big late model race on Labor Day. What we'd love for you to do is go back to Greenville with us, work with us a couple of months. We're going to run a, a few l limited races the rest of this year in Cup, and then the full schedule next year. She said, see if you like us. We'll see if we like you, and we'll go from there. So I went up there and worked about a month, and immediately they said, Larry, we want you to come full-time. So I flew back home, hooked a U-Haul trailer behind my little 1971 green Pinto. Yes! yes. Green a bike. Pinto! Okay. I'm talking green. You have never seen a green like this Pinto. I had a 72, Larry, and it had wood on it. It was yellow with wood on the sides. Yeah, mine, my, I couldn't afford wood on the side of mine. I, mine was solid green. But when I hooked when I hooked the U-Haul behind it, when I hooked the U-Haul behind it, it started dragging the ground before I put anything in it. But my mom and dad looked at me and said, "This is the craziest thing we've ever seen. You'll be back in six months. You'll be broke, and you'll be hungry. We'll feed you, but we're not going to bail you out of debt." As much as I always respected my mom and my dad, they're both deceased now. I said, "You guys are probably right." But I gotta go try this, and I'm proud to say, almost 43 years later, I'm still up here in the Carolinas beating and the bushes. Let Let's take this opportunity to take a break, Larry. We'll come back. We want to hear more. We're talking to Larry McReynolds. You're listening to Fast Car to NASCAR with Mike Wallace on the Speed Sport Podcast Network, powered by My Race Pass and NASCAR Digital Media. Welcome back to the Speed Sport Podcast Studios. You're listening to Fast Car to NASCAR with Mike Wallace. My name is Jeff Kent. Today's guest, America's Crew Chief Larry McReynolds on the line. Once again, here's Mike Wallace. Larry, first of all, I have to apologize. I was trying to interrupt you in that last session because I was so excited about hearing 
about what you you moved in, old Green Pinto. I know you hit on it a second ago, but bring that back to it. Paint us the picture of what it looked like with the U-Haul and the Pinto hooked up. <laughs> it, it, it was quite the sight. And, and as I came up, you know, I-20 from, from Birmingham to Atlanta and I-85 from Atlanta up to Greenville, got a lot of interesting looks because the pool thing probably would barely run the speed limit with that U-Haul full of my stuff. But the best way I can describe it, if I'd have entered that thing in the ugliest car competition, I'd have won it going away, hands down. That that sounds wonderful. I have, I have the visual. Yeah. I do. That's, uh, <laughs> as we talked, that's one of the things we, we, we get out of all of our guests is how, what did they drive when they moved over here, you know? So, all right. So you're heading up the interstate. You're just about where you're going to be in Greenville, I think you said. Right. What happens there? What, how do you pull in the gate or the parking lot or when's it all start up that end? Well, you know, again, I'd spent about a month up there, you know, basically on an interim basis, you know, get to know me. They get to, I get to know them. So, you know, once it became, I think, evident that I was probably going to, if they were going to offer me a full time job. You know, I I had to find me a place to live. So I actually found an apartment that I shared with one of the other guys that was working on the team. Uh, So I kind of had everything in place before I flew back to Birmingham to get my car, to get my stuff. And uh, so when I got back to Greenville, went to this apartment, we'd already paid a little deposit on and uh, moved in. And, you know, we we didn't have a whole lot of stuff. Heck, I I think we lived there for about three or four months before we ever even bought a shower curtain. So <laughs> we were definitely on a shoestring budget. Yeah. So Larry, we all talk about guys in the early starts, and this is just getting back. What was the rent in the apartment? You got any idea? You remember what you would have paid rent back in the day? Well, it couldn't have been a lot, Mike, because I think when I first went to work for that race team, a cup team now, I think I may have made. Three hundred fifty, four hundred dollars a week, maybe. That's pretty good money, uh, dude. Yeah, I was gonna say that was pretty good back then. <laughs> That's more than I was making in nineteen seventy eight. Well, if you remember, <laughs> a cup team in nineteen eighty one, we had three full time employees. So if you do the math, I was probably making three dollars and seventy five cents an hour. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, the, the time involved. So, how did that? That part of your career, how did it start out? How'd you do? How'd you enjoy that at that particular point working for that team? Well, I mean, Mike, I, I was I was almost overwhelmed because I had dreamed uh, about making a living doing it what I enjoyed doing, and that was working on race cars. And, and I knew it was probably not going to happen in Birmingham, Alabama. That somehow, some way, I was going to have to get to the Carolinas. And, you know, I should always go back and thank that guy that I stayed on about leaving those forks up. I should go back and find him and even today give him a big old hug because had it not been for that, not sure that it would ever came to fruition. I'd probably still be back there working in that junkyard. (laughs) But just to be being able to get up and go to work. And that was my living. And I'm working on race cars. And I, I felt so blessed and so fortunate. And, you know, and we, we ran a couple of races in 1980. And, of course, 1980 to 81 was a big transition for the sport. You know, we just went through a big transition with this next-gen car. But I would say the second biggest transition that our sport went through was from 1980 to 1981. Everything downsized. The car got smaller. The car got lighter. It got shorter. It got narrower. All the components were still the same. But it was a big change for the for the sport. So it was a good time for a, a probably a new team to start because everything was changing so much. And the guy that was driving it, Don Sprouse, he and Bob Rogers' owner were best friends. And this is just something they had dreamed about doing. But it didn't take but about one or two, maybe three races into the season that I think they realized Don who was just a local short track racer was so far out of his league. It wasn't even funny. And they decided to make a change in driver and how ironic. And I absolutely had nothing to do with it. They hired Mike Alexander. I think about race number three, or race number four, the guy that I was working with 
that was driving the late model when I left Birmingham, September of 1980. What a unique story. You know, I always, I don't mind, mean to tie my stories into our guests, but Jeff, Larry, the first race car that I drove at Martinsville, Virginia, I drove for Barry Owen, was, yep. was a Mike Alexander car. Oh, yeah? Yep. The uh, wow. gentleman, what, what's his name? Owns 31W Insulation. That's uh, owned them Nashville cars forever. But uh, just when you said Mike Alexander's name, I thought, wow, look at that. That was small world. Yes, right? sir. Especially in NASCAR. Yeah. So you change, and Mike Alexander came aboard to drive the car. And um, anything change or just kind of went on because size of the team? Yeah, I mean, again, we, we had three full-time employees, and we ran the full schedule. Now, we had guys that came in and helped us at night. We obviously had guys that that went to the track with us and helped us. I think we maybe had four race cars. We had a, a super speedway car. We had a road course car that was also a short track car because the only road course we ran back then was Riverside. Watkins Glen or Sonoma had not come about yet. And we had a couple of intermediate cars. And when we left the shop to go racing, the shop shop was dark. And I'm telling you, we, we worked seven days a week. I remember working half a day on Thanksgiving, half a day on Christmas Eve, Christmas, New Year's Eve and New Year's Day was just two additional days because we, we had to, to, to get it done. But I think Mike was fast. There is no doubt. Mike had speed, but I think he was guilty of trying too hard. And because of that, he was tearing a lot of stuff up. And Dana Williamson, who was Bob's daughter that I had originally talked to, she was, she was quite the business lady. And somehow she started having conversation with Tim Richmond and the deal with Tim that year with the 99 car sponsored by Uno, was not going good. So somehow they struck up a deal. They let Mike go, and Tim Richmond came and drove that 37 car the last nine or ten races of 1981, and we damn near won the fall Charlotte race. We were leading with about 25 laps to go. Bobby Allison, Kel Yarbrough was running second, third, we didn't have to make no more pit stops as long as it stayed green. And with about 15, 16 laps to go, I think I knew why we were fast. That engine disintegrated from turn four to turn two. Uh, but it was, it was fun while it lasted. But we finished the year out with Tim. And then uh, they put a deal together. It was kind of a combination deal, Mike, in 82. Tom Sneva brought the sponsorship Simonize, but Tom couldn't run all the races. Donnie Allison ran a few races. And then they also put a deal together with Warner Hodgson to run Neil Bonnet at the short tracks because Neil was running for the Wood Brothers. And remember, for years and years and years, the Wood Brothers, the only short track they would run was their home track of Martinsville. So we kind of had a combination platter. But I think my man, Bob, who I'll always be indebted for, Bob Rogers, I think the, 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 the fountain was running dry. And finally, after the Coke 600, even, even with a little bit of sponsorship from Warner Hodgson and a little bit from Simon Ice, he, uh, he closed the door and folded camp. So it lasted almost a year and a half, but uh, that was my first venture there with, with, with a race team in the Cup Series. So as exciting as that was, and, you know, as hard as you worked, and that's why I always say the difference today, guys that were brought up in the sport like Larry, that you worked on the race cars because you wanted to. It was a passion. Right. It wasn't really a job, you know. I hear so much of about being a job today, and it goes right through me. It's like, man, you got to drive a race car, work on a race car. <laughs> so after you guys had that, when the gentleman said he was going to close the race shop, were you expecting that, or was that kind of the first time that you had this reality check, like, oh, what do I do now? Well, I kind of thought back to my mom and dad, even though it had been much longer than six months, I kind of thought back to what they said. You'll be back. You'll be broken. You'll be hungry. We'll feed you, but we're not going to bail you out of debt because here I am in Greenville, South Carolina, and there's no other race teams in Greenville, South Carolina. And what am I going to do? And, and Bob, 
he was he was really good to me. He he had two daughters, and I think I had kind of become the son that he never had. And he told me, "You have a job as long as you want a job. It may be working in my body shop. It may be working in my car leasing company. You'll always have a job." Well, that was very flattering, but Mike, I I didn't leave Birmingham to go to Greenville to work in a body shop or a car leasing company. So he said, I know you want to work in NASCAR, but he said, the only thing I'm going to ask of you is help me get my stuff ready for an auction. I said, absolutely. So late June, early July, uh, they had a two-day auction, auctioned everything off. And believe it or not, Mark Martin and his mom, Jackie Martin, came to the auction. Now, remember, 82 was Mark's rookie season. The Apache stove car, his yeah. own car, the 02 car, had a little shop there right by the Speedway in the old Goodyear building. So Mark and his mom came to the auction both days. About halfway through the second day, Mark's mom kind of cornered me and said, what, what, what are your plans? I said, Jackie, I, I have no idea. I said, I promised Bob I'd get him through this auction, and then I'll just I'll go from there. She said, why don't you come see me next week? Okay. So I went up the next week, visited with her and Mark, and they wanted me to come to work for them. But here, here's the interesting thing. Now, remember, Mike, I had only been in the sport a year and a half. I'm only 22 years old. They wanted me to be Mark's crew chief because they were they were parting ways with his current crew chief. And I said, guys, is is flattering as overwhelming as that is? I'm not ready for that. No way. They said, no, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Mark's gonna make all the calls on his car. We've got Herb Nab that comes in and works with us during the race weekend. We just need somebody full time that will make sure everything that Mark wants done gets done. So actually the final half of 1982, I was Mark Martin's crew chief, at least the listed crew chief. I guess they wanted somebody to get, if someone got suspended, I'd be the guy, but uh, <laughs> I was Mark's crew chief the second half of his rookie season in 82. I'm going to tell you what, I've heard a lot of stories about you, Larry, but I never knew that. Yeah. And that's amazing because, you know, we grew up with Mark back in Missouri and Arkansas. My brother Rusty raced against him every Friday and Saturday night. And we seen Jackie, his mom, Julia, and his dad. You know, we were just like the – we were the partying stupid, crazy kids. And Mark was this little young kid that was fast, man. He knew a lot about his race cars, understood them. And, but I never knew you were involved with him. I, that, that's cool to hear. Yeah, it was, again, is the second half of his rookie season in – you know, as the season was getting wound down, Mike, it, it kind of became obvious that this was going to be the last two raw for Mark Martin Racing. Uh, in fact, it was getting so bad on the budget side of things. With about a month to go, I went to Jackie and I said, you know, the last race of the year is Riverside. I said, why, why don't you just rent him a ride for Riverside instead of us taking our stuff out there? I said, it's, it's expensive. Everything about the trip's expensive. And she said, Larry, no way. We set out to run this full season, and that's what we're going to do in the checkered flag at Riverside. And I said, okay, there is an off weekend before Riverside. I said, to help save money, why don't we take the hauler and the Suburban and let's drive to Riverside. So sure enough, about a week before the Riverside race, we all piled up in the in the uh, what was then almost like a, a, a renegade with the trailer hook behind it in the suburban across the country. We went and Mike, I'm so glad we did it because we went out there and even having a flat tire under green, we ended up finishing fifth. So we at least ended on a high note. Well, that's outstanding. That's a great story. Yeah. What happened after Riverside? To Larry McReynolds, does he still have the Pinto? The answer to those questions and more coming up. You're listening to Fast Car to NASCAR with Mike Wallace on the SpeedSport Podcast Network, powered by My Race Pass and NASCAR Digital Media. 
Welcome back to the Speed Sport Podcast Studios. You are listening to Fast Card and NASCAR with Mike Wallace. My name is Jeff Kent. On the line today, Larry McReynolds, America's crew chief, Larry Mack, once again. Here's Mike Wallace. Well, you know Larry's going to come up all the time every time I see you anymore. So did when you were working for Mark Martin, did you still have the pinno or not? <laughs> well, when I went to work there, yes. But I got a little bit of a bump in money, and I went down to one of Mark's supporters pat rogers who owned a buick dealership down in gastonia and old larry mack bought him a brand new 82 buick regal so i was in yeah. hot pot now you're rolling i did pat rogers i see him all the time so that's that's unique so you're what happens from the point that you you guys ran fifth in riverside which is outstanding hopefully had a great road trip to and from what was the next step at that point for larry mack well, I'm beginning to believe I'm seeing a trend in the pattern. Larry Mack goes to work for a race team. They race for a little while, then they shut down and close the doors. So, so, you, so you break race teams along the way. <laughs> yeah, obviously that was, the, that was the trend of the pattern. Add that to your resume, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, we, we come back from Riverside, and we kind of get their stuff in order. But, I mean, that was it. The doors were closed, and, and we were done. And – um I really wasn't sure what to do now. The good thing is I'm at least in Charlotte. So I at least maybe have some more options. And I remember uh, going up and talking to uh, the group at Junior Johnson, Jeff Hammond. I remember going up and talking to the group up at, at, in Randleman at, at Petty Enterprises. But the biggest thing, I, I just didn't want to rush into anything. I almost wanted to get through the holidays. I was going to go back to Birmingham for the holidays, come back and reset and figure out what I want to do. But believe it or not, about two days before I was going to leave to go home back to Birmingham for Christmas, Tim Richmond called me and said, hey, man, what are you going to do next year? And of course, I got to know Tim when he drove the 37 car at the end of 81. I said, Tim, I, I, I don't know. I, I said, I'm, I, I'm trying to figure it out. He said, look, I don't know if you've heard, but I'm going to go to I'm going to go drive for this new race team called Blue Max Racing. Raymond Beetle, the drag racer, is going to own it. Tim Brewer is going to be the crew chief. He said, uh, why don't you go talk to Tim? I said, well, I'm, I'm leaving tomorrow to go home for Christmas. As soon as I get back, I'll certainly do it. He said, I'm going to let Tim know when you get back, you'll come see him. So sure enough, I got back from Birmingham. I went and visited with Tim. He hired me right away. Now, I was hired as a tire specialist, a mechanic, and I was also going to be the truck driver. So, and you know what? This is this is the first major race team I'm going to be working for that has manufacturer support, Old Milwaukee, a prime primary sponsor. It's like this is all looking pretty sweet. And I don't know, Mike, big race teams sometimes aren't what they're made out to be. <laughs> we, we went to Daytona, and we had not been paid in over a month. Tim, Tim Brewer went and cashed a personal check to give us all per diem to be able to go to Daytona. When we got to Darlington, race number five, I remember taking my wheels – down to the Goodyear building to get tires mounted. Thurman Huggins, Huggins Tire, he's standing at the building with his hand held up going, take those wheels back down to your hauler. We are not mounting a single tire. We have not had a tire bill paid all year long. Oh, wow. It just, it just <laughs> was not a good situation. I mean, Raymond Beetle was a great guy. He was a horrible businessman. <laughs> just just and, refused uh, to pay the bills, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is, a, yeah, this is not good. And we, Tim Brewer went and wrote a personal check to Thurman for him to mount us tires to at least practice and qualify on. And lo and behold, we sat on the freaking pole. Oh, really? <laughs> oh, yeah. So Brewer wrote the check to, just to cover it, huh? Just, yeah. just to give Thurman a, a comfort level to mount us two or three sets of tires. Wow. They dropped the green flag on Sunday, and we blew up turn three of lap one. Oh. And there was a lot of testosterone flying around in that race team. <laughs> there was Tim Brewer, 
Harold Elliott, Frog Fagan, just a lot of egos. Mm. And you know what? I, I, I came back and I, I went in Tim's office. I said, Tim, I, I, I'm out of here. I, I, I said, I, you know, our, our paychecks are bouncing like rubber balls. People I deal with, like the tire people, are screaming at me because they hadn't been paid. This is not this is not made for me. And so I quit. But in the interim, Bob Rogers had been calling me, wanting me to come back to Greenville. He wanted to go bush racing with a guy by the name of Butch Lindley. So I moved back to, uh, to Greenville and started this little bush series team. The one sidebar story, while I was working for Mark, Mark Martin, in mid-82, I met what's now my wife of almost 40 years, Linda McReynolds. She's working in Charlotte. When I got the opportunity in April or May to go back to Greenville, I'd already fallen in love with Linda. So over a Domino's pizza, sitting in the living room floor, watching some movie, I said, I got to go back to Greenville. And she got all teary-eyed, and I said, well, I think I've got a, a remedy to this answer. Will you marry me? I didn't oh. even have a ring. I didn't have a ring. <laughs> wow. I'll tell you what, though. It doesn't get more romantic than that. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. The living, living room, room floor, floor eating Domino's, Domino's pizza. pizza. They call me the love doctor. <laughs> I'll tell you what, Larry, you're gonna have to we're gonna all have to get together sometime and go out for a pizza one night. Now I'm gonna I'm gonna pull this up on you and have you reenact the experience right there. Well, thank God she said yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's beautiful. Well, she's a wonderful lady. I haven't seen her in a long time. Please tell her I said hello. And uh so you uh Heck, I lost a train of thought. Where was I? Got going? married. Well, We're I, gonna I get moved married. back to Greenville, and Linda go. moves with me. Okay. This is like April, May of, of 1983, and we ran a few races, and we were fast, man. We we sat on the pole in Hampton, Virginia, with a brand new race car that we had built in about eight days. And you talking about a light short track car? You better not even put your hand on it, or the darn fenders and doors would bend. It was built so light. And we sat on the pole, and Tommy Ellis sat on the outside pole, and they ran door handle to door handle for 50 laps. You couldn't even tell who led what lap. And Glenn Jarrett, driving for uh, the group out of South Carolina, he'd been sitting on pit road for about 50 laps with an oil leak. He came off pit road, and the, the exit of pit road was right in the middle of turn one. He drove off pit road, drove into the side of Tommy Ellis. Tommy got the side of Butch. The last I've seen of Butch Lindley and our brand new race car, it was going over the fence. Oh, oh, destroyed. This was like, this was like, I don't know, July of, of 83. We get back to Greenville. We're in the shop. We're going to get ready to go run the next race. Bob Rogers walked in the shop actually cut the light switched off and said, that's it, boys, I'm done. <laughs> closed doors on me for a second time. Why did he close doors on the second time? Uh, same as the first time, lack of funding. Oh, wow. You know, you know, do you ever hear this thing of six degrees of separation, Larry, where people say in the whole world we're only separated by six degrees? I know somebody that knows you. That The, the late, great Robin Williams taught me that on a trip. Okay. So Larry's talking about Butch Lindley right now. Now, Jeff, this is no kidding. My wife, Carla, Larry knows who, and you both know Carla, her grandmother was a Lindley, and she was related in some way to Butch Lindley because early in life she kept saying, oh, my, my cousin, somebody, she says, his name is Butch Lindley. He's supposed to be pretty good. Yeah. And it, what a small <laughs> world. I didn't. Here you were for Mark Martin and Butch Lindley. I never knew How that. that? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and I, I tell you, we – we had it going on. We didn't run very many races from May to, to July because of short, short time. But everywhere we went, we, we were so bad fast. I mean, Butch Lindley, probably the best short track racer ever to grip a steering wheel of a race car. Really? 
Yeah, that's uh, we'll, we'll enjoyed meeting him at some time. That unfortunately didn't happen. But so you you've done now. You've established a history that you've broke another race team. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> so so you're you're down there in Greenville, most likely. You guys got to move somewhere else. Now tell me about that. You and Linda are together now. And uh, have you been? Have you got married at this time, or are you just on still on the engaged part? It, it was definitely a whirlwind. We we started dating in January of of eighty three. We got engaged in May of eighty three. We ended up eventually getting married in October of eighty three. But you talking about scared to death? Here I am in Greenville, South Carolina again. Not only am I there by myself, I now have moved this this young lady to Greenville. The good thing is she she was she was an orthodontist assistant. She had no trouble finding a job in Greenville. We got an apartment. We're going to get married here in about three months, and I'm jobless again. Well, there was a guy by the name of Bill Terry that was down in Greenville. He was kind of like the 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 king of short track racing at Greenville Pick and Speedway. Uh, he owned several short track cars. They called him Big Daddy. And anyhow, he called me out of the clear blue. I, I'd been out of work now. Bob had closed the doors for about two weeks. He called me. He said, what you going to do? He called me Baby Boy. He said, <laughs> Baby Boy, what you going to do now? Oh, Bob's done, done it to you again, hadn't he? Hey, now this is this big daddy guy you're talking about. He wouldn't have, happen to have real long hair and owned a bar at one time, did he? That's the big daddy, okay. Bill Terry. <laughs> <laughs> I, so you know him too. I ran into him at Pensacola, Florida, Snowball Derby. He bought one of Rusty's cars on site. He told oh, me he was going to buy it before the race, and he crashed. And he says, "I still want it." And it was like, "Who is this guy?" Okay, I'm oh lo- yeah, I'm loving these so stories. He, he said, "So here, here's the deal, baby boy." I know you didn't come down here to work on late models, but I tell you what, do you come work for me? We're going to run those two late model cars every Saturday night out of Greenville Pickens. We may go run some other races, but that'll be our main focus. You come work on Monday morning. We get back to the shop on Saturday night. I'll pay you $300 cash. And you tell me whether you want to work another week or not. I went, well, it beats any other offers I've got. So let's do it. So I did that for about 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 a month and a half. Well, we were out there one Saturday night. This might have been late August, early September. And I kept noticing the guy hanging around the, the trailer. And I knew he looked familiar, but I couldn't put a name with the face. So we actually won the race that night. So after we loaded up, this guy kind of, real casually walked up to me and put a business card in my hand, said, I'm Bobby Hawkins. Give me a call next week. Well, Bobby Hawkins owned the car that David Pearson was driving, the Chattanooga Chief car. And they ran a very limited schedule. I think David ran about 10 or 12 races a year. They were working out of David's shops in Spartanburg, but Bobby owned the car and Chattanooga Chief was a sponsor. So I called him the first of the week, and he said, Larry, he said, you're, you're the hardest damn worker I believe I've ever seen in my life. And he said, you know, he explained the whole deal. We run 10 or 12 races. We, we need one more person up there at David's shop. And, you know, we need somebody to drive the truck. I know you can drive a truck. So I took the deal with, uh, with Bobby um, in September of 1983, worked out of David's shops up there in Spartanburg, and, you know, for a guy just about to get married, running only 10 or 12 races a year, it was the perfect scenario. So that's what I did the rest of 83 and throughout the entire 80, 84 season. Wow. Well, See, and you said you never became a driver, so that wasn't true. See, yeah. you were, this is the second time now you're a truck driver. Yeah. I just had a lot more tires and wheels than a race car. <laughs> well, let's come back and uh... – pick up man we, we've got to speed it up we're gonna run out of time back in the day with larry McReynolds, you're listening to fast car to nascar with mike wallace on the speed sport podcast network powered by my race pass and nascar digital media Welcome back to the SpeedSport Podcast Studios. You're listening to Fast Car to NASCAR with Mike Wallace. My name is Jeff Kent. On the line today, veteran crew chief 
Fox broadcaster, broadcast professional. There you go. Larry McReynolds. Once again, here's Mike Wallace. Well, Larry, my guys tell me I'm dragging it out too much, and we've got so much of your career we got to get in in a short time. So this final 15 minutes, I need to fast-forward motion of Larry Mack. So when did you get or where did you go that you start to think you made it in the sport and then uh, to bring us to present day? Yeah, you, you know, working for Kenny Bernstein, King Racing that started in 86, you know, worked there 86 through basically just the beginning <clears throat> of 1991. <clears throat> I would say, Mike, getting that first win with Ricky Rudd, at Watkins Glen in August of 1988, coming back the next year and winning Sonoma with Ricky. And then even 1990, you know, helping Brett, Brett Bodine get his only cup win at Wilkesboro. Uh, to win three cup races, even though it was only once a year, kind of made you feel like you, you, you're on pretty solid ground. But there is no doubt going to Robert Yates Racing, that was a career-making move. When I went there, Basically, race number five of 1991 with him and, and Davey Allison in that 28 car, that that was the move, I think, that safe to say it, it put old Larry Mack on the NASCAR map. Tell me, Larry, I've asked you to fast forward. Now I'm backing you up. What was it like? I am assuming Robert Yates called you, talked to you. How did you get hired by him or who did that? Because that had to be just an incredible experience. Well, actually, in the 89 Davey and Robert both started hammering on me about coming over there. Uh, and Davey's Alice, Allison sales pitch was, Larry, the horsepower we've got, if you'll just help me come get this thing pointed, we will wear them out. And I actually took a job at the end of 1989, headed into 1990, and I got cold feet. I just felt so indebted to Kenny Bernstein because I felt like he had given me such a phenomenal opportunity when most people wouldn't do it because again i had never won a race not as a crew chief not as a mechanic not as anything and he gave me an opportunity with, with a fully funded race team headed into 86 and i had to call robert and tell him i couldn't do it well fast forward start the 1991 season we were so fast for that 26 car Sat on the outside the pole at Atlanta Motor Speedway, but we we just we couldn't get everything connected. We could get the car working good, we could get the aero good, and we'd have engine issues. We'd ha get the engine fixed, and we couldn't get the aero side of things. I just felt like we were a situation where we could maybe win one or two races a year, but we were never going to be championship contenders. And after the Atlanta race weekend, they had had a falling out with Jake Elder over there with Robert and I was kind of wits in with what was going on with the 26 car. And Robert called me and said, I know you are loyal to Kenny, but I'm going to make a crew chief change this week. Are you interested? And I said, when and where do you want to meet? And we met and got things put together. That's outstanding. Congratulations on that. That, that I do have to, say with the little bit that I know about that stuff, that was uh, an earmark moment in your career going, going to that 28 car. No doubt. No doubt. It, and when I went back there in the dyno room and saw the first engine being dynoed, I went, holy crap. I've wasted about five years of my career. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't it amazing when you go somewhere that's got all the stuff and how much easier it makes it? <laughs> You don't have to work near as hard. <laughs> yeah, I, I had the opportunity to drive for Penske Racing for eight races back in 2000. It's like, wow, it's like I went to some cool driving school last, this week, and yeah. just everything's easier. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So what did you do after Robert Yates? Uh, most of the world knows a lot of the success you had there and the things that were going on. What, 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 was the, what went on at that point? Well, I, I was there, you know, from the fifth race of 91 to the end of 96 and, and, and my gosh, you know, one races with Davey Allison, the 92 Daytona 500, you know, came close on the championship in 92. And then of course we lost him when you least expect it in a helicopter crash, July 13th of 1993. We pick up the pieces. Ernie Irvin starts driving the car. Um, the latter part of, of, of 1993, we went back-to-back -back races at Martinsville and Charlotte. 
We start 1994 off. We're winning, winning races, sitting on poles, leading laps. And when you least expect it, practice crash in Michigan in August of 1994. He's out for the rest of the year. Your brother was good enough to come in there and finish out the season with us um, of 1994, which was exactly what we needed. Kenny is such a positive and upbeat person, and helping him get his first top five finish at Martinsville in the fall of that year, that was pretty cool. Dale Jarrett runs it in 95. We win Pocono. Ernie comes back in 1996. We win a couple races. But I think, Mike, as the 96 season was winding down, we started the second team in 96. And my gosh, I think between the two teams, we won six or seven races. Dale and Ernie both finished, Dale Jarrett and Ernie both finished top 10 in points. But I think with everything going through the Davy deal, the Ernie deal, starting the second team, as 96 was closing out, I was just mentally and physically wore out. It was nothing due to Robert. It was nothing due to Ernie. It was nothing due to performance. I think I just needed a clean sheet of paper. And about the time I was feeling that, that I needed this fresh start, here comes Dale Earnhardt and Richard Childress wanting to know if I'd be interested in coming and joining them for 1997 with the three car. Um, it was kind of a no-brainer. Not because of anything negative at Robert Yates Racing. I just needed a fresh start. That's a pretty good fresh start right there. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so. what was it like, your crew chief for Dale Earnhardt, top of the sport? What was that like? Well, it was pretty cool yeah. until I could not help him find victory lane. Mm. Um. You know, we went to Daytona, and I we, we were in a position to win that thing with about 18, 20 laps to go, and that's when our car picked up a push. Jeff Gordon got into our left rear coming up off turn two, and he's barrel rolling down the back straightaway. But it, it wasn't that Dale and I didn't get along. There were so many things written about we, we were arguing, we were fussing, we were fighting. That was to the contrary. We just had very different personalities. Dale was very laid back. I I was a very high-strung individual, and we just we just couldn't get things plugged together to get what we needed to win a race. And the man had a winless 1997 season. I thought I was going to have to hire a bodyguard to protect me because the Earnhardt fans were accusing me of sabotaging Dale's career. I was being accused of Ford sending me over there to sabotage Chevrolet. You have no idea. Really? <laughs> you remember the Earnhardt fans? They have a little bit of passion, you know, back in the <laughs> yeah, day, especially especially when you, you go up. With my uniform on, because I'm telling you, people were serious about this whole sabotaging Dale's career. But the cool thing, after February, I think February 17th, 1998, I could have run for president and got some votes. <laughs> got him a win in the Daytona 500. Yeah. T tell me about that experience, Larry. Winning, you know, we, we bought, passed over the Davy Allison one, but tell me about winning the Daytona 500 as, as a crew chief and, and as a person. W what is that like to you? Well, you know, yeah, winning in 1992 with Davy, you know, it was my first 500 win. It was Davy's first 500 win. It was Robert Yates Racing's first 500 win. I, I don't know what a, a coach feels like when they win a Super Bowl or a World Series. But I got to believe it's pretty close to it. But six years later, to go there with Dale Earnhardt, the man had won at Daytona 30-something times in, in Xfinity, in the summer race, the dual race, the clash, IROC. He just could not close the deal on the 500. And that car that we won the 500 with, we built that thing during the summer of 1997. By the time the calendar year of 1998 came around, that car had already been in the wind tunnel two or three times. And we'd already been to Talladega with Dave Marcus and tested it a couple of times. And the first time Dale drove it was the, the January test of 1998. And he loved it. 
The car wasn't brutally fast, Mike, but you being a race car driver, you'll understand this. When he would turn the wheel to go down in the corner, the car would not lose RPM. It maintained RPM even through the corners. Wow. And that's where the car is so good. And we got the speed weeks. It's almost like we could do no wrong. The, the slicker that track got, the deeper we went in through the week, it's almost like the better the car drove. And we were able to finally win it. He didn't promote how much he wanted to win it, but I knew how bad. Because right before they fired the engines and right before we clipped that window net, he got me by the collar and kind of pulled me in toward the window opening and said, you just get me near the front or to the leader when this thing's closing out today, and I'll make their good day go bad. <laughs> that sounds like him all the way. <laughs> Again, congratulations on that. So after that, Larry, where where's your career go at that point? You've, you've just won the Daytona 500 with Dale Earnhardt. The season goes on, and um, where is it at at that point? Well, we go about a third of the way through, and he, honestly, even winning the 500, we kind of were back to where we we were, you know, 1997. We just couldn't get the car to go around the corner for Dale. I couldn't. And fourth May, after the Richmond race in 1998, the 31 car with Mike Skinner, Kevin Hamlin, the crew chief, they weren't running much better. In fact, that Richmond race... Mike and Dale battled their ass off all night long for about 20. Oh, wow. And I remember being in the, the minivan driving home with Linda and the kids on Sunday morning after Richmond. And my phone rang. And it was it was Richard. He said, what you doing, pal? I said, well, we just left the racetrack. We're driving home. He said, what time do you think you can be at the shop? And I said, well, you know, should be able to be there in about four, four and a half hours. He said, uh, can you get Linda to drop you off here? And he said, I'll make sure you got a car to drive home. And I'm thinking, this is it. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm tired. But the good thing is, I think Richard had come to realization he had two really good race car drivers, Dale Earnhardt and Mike Skinner. He had two really good crew chiefs in Kevin Hamlin and Larry McReynolds. You know what? I think I just have a mix wrong. And he made the decision to swap Kevin and I, put me with Mike and put Kevin with Dale. Both teams were immediately much better. <clears throat> I was exactly what Mike needed. I was high strung. I would tell him to shut the hell up and just drive the race car. <laughs> Kevin was very laid back, which is exactly what Dale needed. And thank the good Lord, that's the way Richard saw it. Wow. <laughs> So Richard was a good coach at that time. He had the talent. He just needed to move it around a little Sometimes bit. Sometimes that's all it takes. Yeah. So what is it, Larry, 34 days to Daytona? From the day as we are taping this, 34 days into the Daytona 500. That is correct. So in a, in a very quick story, like super quick, when was the day you decide you're not going to be a crew chief anymore and you start your new career as America's crew chief? Well, from 1995 through 2000, I was doing some part-time TV work for, for what was then uh, TNN, TBS, even did a couple of races at Homestead for the Bush Series uh, for CBS, Xfinity Series. I, I would do off weekends or maybe on a Saturday before the cup race. Uh, never saw myself doing it as a way of making a living, but I did enjoy it. And in December of 1999, uh, a year before the Fox NBC deal became a reality, but the deal was already done, I got a call from David Hill, the chairman of Fox Sports, that introduced himself and said they had watched some, some tapes of some work I had done, and they had hired Daryl Waltrip as their driver analyst for 2001. And uh, wanted to know if I would at least entertain having a conversation with them. And I had no idea how to even answer them. I had th this came out of left field. But it's um, a decision that Linda and I told over for about six or eight months. And finally, in August of 2000, made the decision I would take the deal with Fox. And uh, they were offering me a two-year deal, Mike. 
And I really felt like if I took it and I didn't like it or they didn't like me, I could always go back. But here we are about ready to start my 23rd season of NASCAR on Fox. How about that? that that's incredible. You do a great job, Larry. Yeah, Larry, you yeah. do a... Uh... You bring it to the you bring the sport to the fans and, and love that and I appreciate your time today and Jeff and we've learned a lot of this a lot about Larry McReynolds and we'd love to have you come back on and and do a few more things back in depth you just careers run fast when you talk about them you can't, don't have enough time I guess you can't put sixty years in, in an hour well and a lot has to do with my way of presenting things Linda says when I do retire from broadcasting I'll probably become a Baptist preacher. <laughs> <laughs> well, well. on that closing note, I'm going to ask you something like a family issue here. I understand here in uh, in the, this past year, you, you've got a new son-in-law. His name is Jordan Anderson. He owns a race team, right? He does, yeah. He owns an Xfinity Series team, and they're going to run two cars uh, this year in 2023 with Jeb Burton and with uh, a young driver by the name of Parker Retzlaff. So, so the uh, talented individual you are—not just your TV side, but your crew chief—are you up at that shop giving him some, Jordan some advice on how to to run his team, or uh, you stand clear well, of that? He, he knows he can call on me anytime. And when when he did get hurt at Talladega in that in that fire, uh, I did go up there and just a couple of days, just kind of kept my hand on the pulse until until he was back up and running. But he knows I'm always here. But other than that, I'm just I'm just gonna be the father-in-law. <laughs> Sounds good. Perfect. <laughs> Tell Linda I said hello, where we say hello, and uh, thank you very much for taking your time. Really appreciate it. Great stories, With Larry Mack. Carla and your family, uh, we said hello. You're a good friend, Mike. I, I know we kind of don't see each other that much, but it was great great to catch up at Stock for Tots and glad we could do this. Yes, sir. It goes Larry McReynolds. You've been listening to Fast Car to NASCAR with Mike Wallace on the Speed Sport Podcast Network, powered by My Race Pass and NASCAR Digital Media. We'll see you next week.